John 20, from verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the, at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May God bless his word to us. Well, as we come to sit under God's word, and as I get ready to speak for the first time in a while, I think it would be good to ask for God's help. So why don't we do that together as we start? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for uh, this passage that we are coming to today. Thank you for um, the wonder of the resurrection. And Father God, I do pray that these familiar words, um, as they are to many of us, they they wouldn't uh, breed contempt, but they would breed a fascination and, again, uh, um, bring us to awe again at just what happened at the cross and the fact that Jesus rose again. Heavenly Father, help us to be awestruck again by uh, just what that means for us now, living here in the 21st century. Father God, I do pray that we would leave here feeling more in love with Jesus and more ready to speak about him. And we pray all these things in your strong name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to what is a stunning part of Scripture, I think. Uh, Last week, over Easter weekend, we were looking, if you remember, at the hope and life and joy and light that we as believers in Jesus Christ are looking forward to after death, with all that imagery that Robin and Rog gave to us, uh, with God and the Lamb, Jesus Christ being the source of all that light and life and joy, with every human who has ever trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ allowed to enter God's throne room with confidence for an eternity of a perfect relationship with the living Lord of creation. And what an incredible picture that is. But for some of you here, you may be here this morning and and, and you are yet to be convinced by Christianity And I would wager that it is all this chat of eternity and eternal joy and life everlasting that makes you highly skeptical of the Christian faith. As Robin said last week, is this not all pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die stuff? And that's a great question. At the very best, some of you may be thinking, if only. I wish. I wish it were true that there was this realm of eternal happiness that I sort of um, go into, that, that greeted me when I finished with this life that up until this point has been nothing short of a hard, thankless slog, if only. At the very worst, some of you here may be thinking that this is total rubbish and that Christians are deluded, that we are, in fact, preaching something that is dangerous, compelling people to a false hope in something that we all know isn't true, that actually only leads to a hopeless death. Well, may I say to you this morning that all that is true if Christ does not rise again from the dead. If Christ does not rise from the dead, then you're dead right. The Christian faith is a delusion and a dangerous one at that. In fact, even the Bible itself says that. 
The Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the Christian faith is futile. And Christians should be pitied because we are all believing in a colossal lie. You see, the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. And remove it, and we have nothing. Without it, we have no Revelation 21 and 22. We have no eternity, no hope, no forgiveness of sins, no life, no purpose in life. In short, if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, I have far better things to be getting on with than standing up here in front of you today trying to convince you of it. And for those of us who are Christians here this morning, in the cold light of day, maybe that's a thought that's not crossed your mind as starkly before now. The thought that for us the resurrection is everything. And without it, we have nothing. And this is helpful for us to be aware of. For those of us, as Robin said last week, who are plagued with nagging doubt as to whether the Bible really is true, who maybe feel that eternity is a pipe dream, that the idea of suffering being over is just too much to bear hoping for in my current situation. Staring the resurrection square in the face as we are this morning, helps us to answer the question that when push comes to shove, are we absolutely convinced beyond all reasonable doubt that Jesus Christ is alive today and that he reigns, that he is in full control of this earth and that there is such a thing as life everlasting? Well, this is exactly why John 20 is here in our Bibles. For you skeptics, The question is this, how can I be so sure that Jesus Christ rises from the dead making Christianity worth examining? You can be sure because of John 20. To those of us who are Christians here today, our question is this, how can I be so sure that Jesus rises from the dead making Christ worth sticking with? You can be sure because of John 20. Because here in John 20 we have a vivid Bold, blow-by-blow eyewitness account of exactly what happened on that resurrection morning by John himself. John is in this passage, the the Apostle John who writes this book. He is the, 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 the other disciple in this part of Scripture, the one whom Jesus loves. He is actually writing all this as he's seeing it. We are running alongside John literally to the tomb. And so understand this before we get into it. John 20 isn't hearsay or received after many years of being handed down through the centuries, now containing foggy facts. It is live, action-packed, full of minute, almost unnecessary detail, because it is first-hand eyewitness testimony. And what is the purpose of this eyewitness testimony? Well, primarily, first on your service sheets, it is written to convince us 2,000 years later that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. So let's get straight into the passage and let's look at the evidence that John details for us. And as we do that, let's look at the objections that um, John hits on the head as he goes through this account of the resurrection. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that the first most helpful question to ask in regards to the resurrection would be, is Jesus actually really dead? And that's a great question. And to answer that, it's worth going back a chapter to chapter 19, verse 38. Just have a look at that for me, and and I'm going to read it for us. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Was Jesus definitely dead? Most certainly. First of all, look at the men to whom Jesus' body was entrusted. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. These are high-ranking official men with civic responsibility. Joseph was a wealthy member of the Jewish ruling council. We read about that in Matthew chapter 27. And Nicodemus, as we know, was a, a teacher of the law in the temple who approached Jesus personally during his ministry. They were well-known men in authority. John actually mentions Joseph, where Joseph comes from to make sure we don't get the wrong Joseph. These are verifiable, authoritative men of society, and they go and ask Pilate himself for the body. Now remember who Pilate is, the one on whom the responsibility for the death of Jesus lay. It was him who sentenced Jesus to death. In fact, so scared was Pilate of losing his position when he saw that there might be an uprising if he let Jesus go. He had to see Jesus die, even when he was convinced that Jesus was innocent. Why would Pilate hand Jesus over if he were still alive, when his job and his reputation, and in fact probably his life, depended on this man being dead? He would have been finished had the Jews found out that Jesus was still alive. And so as the dead body of Jesus is handed over to these men of office, Nicodemus embalms Jesus' body in 75 pounds worth of oils, which would have cost the earth, incidentally. You wouldn't waste that on a live body. And he binds Jesus tightly in cloths, lays him in a tomb, and encloses it with the stone that we read of in chapter 20, verse 2. It is impossible to think that Jesus is not dead or that he was merely asleep during these 36 hours in the tomb. As one commentator puts it, embalming anyone in 75 pounds worth of anything, even if they were alive, would have suffocated them within minutes as every single pore would have been blocked. Notwithstanding the fact that Jesus was then wrapped up like a mummy, made even worse by the fact that he had just been hanging on a cross for hours, mortally wounded and flogged to within an inch of his life, Jesus is definitely dead. Okay, but what of the evidence surrounding the empty tomb, says John? Can we trust what John records here in John 20, 1 to 10, to be factually accurate? Well, let's have a look at it. Note immediately, it's not one person's view, it's three people, Mary, Peter, and John, and all of them see the same thing. They see, verse 1, that the stone is rolled back, this is in chapter 20, a stone that would have been hewn out of mountain rock, impossibly heavy to lift, that would have needed to have been rolled uphill to be opened, and they all see that the tomb is empty. Mary sees it first, she relays this to the others, they come and they verify her story, and they see, verse 6, nobody but the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the other linen cloths, but folded up by the plate in place by itself. 
That sentence, again, full of minute eyewitness detail. Detail that shows that John was there seeing all this. It's also detail that helps us show that Jesus' body wasn't stolen, so that grave robbers wouldn't have had the time to have stripped off a body. And even if they did, they wouldn't have been bothered where the clothes were neatly tied up or not. So the tomb is definitely empty. Jesus is definitely dead, and the body of Jesus was not stolen. But what of the character of Mary and Peter and John themselves? Are they reliable people to be telling this story? Could they have made all of this up? Well, have a look at their expectations in this passage. Not a single one of them expected Jesus to be alive. In other words, it's not as if these three people had a preoccupation with dead people coming to life. They weren't nutcases, in other words. How do we know this? Well, Mary thinks that Jesus is a gardener, verse 15. And she asks him, Sir, if you have carried Jesus away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She asks this because to a normal, non-crazy first-century person, as would be the same of a normal, non-crazy 21st-century person, dead people don't come to life. And so she asks who she thinks is the gardener, a perfectly normal question as to where Jesus' body is, because she did not expect Jesus to be alive. In short, Mary is not a weak woman who is predisposed to believe in crazy things. She is a rational and normal person. Her reactions to this empty tomb is exactly what you would expect of a normal person. But when Jesus calls her, verse 16, Mary, in his accent, I guess, in a way that was immediately obvious and recognizable to Mary, after seeing him full in the face, She knows it is the teacher, Jesus, come back to life. She was not expecting it, like any normal person wouldn't. But she believed in the risen Jesus by what she saw. A normal person moved to belief. And what of Peter and John? Well, they run to the tomb, and we are told, verse 8, that John himself believed at that moment that Jesus had risen, despite the fact, verse 9, that as of yet, they still did not understand the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. In other words, Peter and John did not make up the story of the resurrection because they wanted to fit it in to their religious understanding that had been brainwashed into them. They had no idea Jesus was meant to rise from the dead. They should have done. Their belief in the resurrection was made entirely independently of Jesus' teaching, in other words, and only on the evidence at hand. Furthermore, look at the rest of the disciples. Verse 19, we've not met them yet. They are found huddled together behind locked doors, for they were in fear of the Jews. If any of them was convinced that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, they would not have been cowering in fear. They would have been waiting in expectation for it to happen. Not in panic, but in hope. There is zero hope and expectation in this room of fear. Jesus is gone, so they are convinced they're going to die along with him. Not a single eyewitness was expecting Jesus to rise again from the dead. And yet the conclusion they all come to is that Jesus rose again from the dead. These guys aren't nuts. They are as shocked by someone coming to life as much as we would be. But they are compelled by the evidence 
They are normal people moved to belief. So Jesus is definitely dead. The people involved in the aftermath of his death are verifiable men of status and authority. The tomb is definitely supernaturally empty, and these witnesses are fundamentally normal and reliable. But here's the last objection that John removes. Is the person who stands before all these people actually Jesus himself, or is it a remarkably clever ploy? Well, let's again look at the evidence. Verse 20 After Jesus had appeared before the assembled apostles, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. This is the definitive body of Jesus come back to life. The same marks in his hands from the crucifixion, the same spear wound in the side that he received on the cross. This is Jesus. And so compelled are these apostles that it is Jesus that their fear, their very real fear, just before this, of of being killed by the Jews who are bent on scrubbing out the name of Jesus, it's turned immediately into gladness. So what does this eyewitness account tell us? It tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really, truly rose from the dead. It actually happened. The evidence is good. The witnesses are reliable. The facts are unavoidable. But the question now is, so what? Why is it so important that Jesus rises from the dead? Well, this is where John has been driving towards for a good many chapters. Because the the resurrection isn't here just to show us that Jesus is a supernatural person. The whole point of the resurrection, point two in your sheets, is that it opens up an unbelievable package of astonishing blessings over humanity. Read with me again from verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? So that he could stand in the middle of a room and say to his disciples, peace be with you. And that is an astonishing thing to say. You see, these words are ram-packed full of incredible spiritual significance. It's not just a greeting. It's not a how are you. It is a statement of spiritual fact. Peace, says Jesus, is now with you, humanity, in the form of full reconciliation with God the Father. You see, not only has John been building up to this point in his gospel, but the whole of the Bible has been aiming for this point. 
All the way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, there is this barrier, if you remember, erected between God and humanity. And, and Rog mentioned last week, we, we see this barrier brought back to our memory in Revelation 21, where the tree of life that we can eat of so freely in the new creation in Revelation, it is cut off from man in Genesis 3 by way of a mighty cherubim that is placed as a sentinel with a, a flaming sword to block the path to real life. That's why we die. That's why we suffer, because we cannot have access to the God of life, because we are a rebellious people. In essence, we're at war with God. We are separated from him. There is enmity between us. God and humans are on different sides of an almighty, uncrossable, cosmic cavern. So how on earth do we get from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21? Through John 20. Through the risen Lord Jesus having conquered death and standing in the middle of a room in physical, real-life form saying, peace be with you. You now have peace with God. I've done it. Death is no longer a problem for you. I'm here as living proof that that's the case. You can now access real, eternal life after death through the stunning achievement of my resurrection power. That's what Jesus is saying in the middle of that room. For those of us who follow Christ and who are maybe plagued by doubt, why is it that you can leave this church building today with full assurance of your eternity? Because John 21 to 10 really happened in the way that it has been recorded. And because the risen Lord Jesus Christ stood in the middle of a room and said, Peace be with you. Not only is the resurrection factually true, but the consequences of it are factually true. If Jesus had just risen without saying anything, we'd be amazed, perhaps, but underwhelmed. What did it all mean? But Jesus himself explains what it all means in his risen flesh. It means peace with God and therefore life everlasting, shown in living, resurrected proof. However, what does this new relationship of peace and reconciliation look like? Well, have you considered, back in verse 17, why Jesus says to Mary, don't cling to be Mary because I've not yet ascended to the Father. Seems odd, doesn't it? You'd want to cling on to someone that you thought was dead. Well, Jesus is effectively saying, no, Mary, don't cling on to me as if you were to keep me here because I've got to ascend to my Father. And that's a good thing. Don't wish for me to stay, in other words. You need to wish for me to go. Why? Because of something that Jesus has said back in chapter 16. Um, turn back there if you want to, verse 7. Jesus says this to his bemused disciples, chapter 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Who is this helper? It is the Spirit. And as Jesus says, peace be with you, signifying the reconciliation that has been made between them and God, so he immediately explains how this works. Verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
This is both a sign as to what is going to happen at Pentecost a few months later, and it is a reminder to them of his teaching that this spirit can only come when he leaves, and that it is a much better thing for them that that happens. Because it will then be true that Jesus is no longer among them as humans, but physically inside them in personal power. And this comes to the heart of what this reconciliation looks like, because the Spirit now allows us to do something that we've not been able to do before. Verse 17 again. Do not cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Can you see what's happened Because of Jesus' resurrection, because of the indwelling spirit, he has now made it possible for us to call God what Jesus calls God, Father. And is that not what the whole of the Gospel of John has been pointing towards right from the very beginning? John 1.14, to all who receive Jesus Christ, he gave them the right to become the children of God. That's what this reconciliation really looks like. That's what peace with God really looks like. We are now children by first degree, not grandchildren, not stepchildren, adopted children by first degree of the living God, our Father, Christ's Father. And it is with Christ in his resurrection that we now share all the things that he shared with his father before the creation of the world. That's what John 17 is about, that Davy will preach on tonight, that great priestly prayer he prayed over his disciples. John 17 verse 11, I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. We're not just friendly with God again. We are children of God again, on a par with Jesus Christ himself. Peace be with you. What an astonishing thing to hear. And because the risen Lord Jesus says this, his next words make total sense. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This peace with God, this enormous news, is something that should be spoken about to all people. And understanding the enormity of this, for those who follow Jesus who are sitting here today, can we grasp afresh just how keeping this news to ourselves is inconceivable? There is proof of a person who has rectified my greatest problem, that is my broken relationship with a loving God and a person that gives true, everlasting life. And so with the gladness of the apostles in that room, realizing that there is a way out of death, we should be telling the world. It is because of this passage being true that we are church planting in Collington next year, God willing. It is because of this passage being true that we put on Passion for Life events Two weeks ago, it's because of this passage being true that we try to have excruciating conversations sometimes with our friends about Jesus, no matter how ridiculous it sounds, because we are more bothered about our friends receiving this life in this personified, real, eternal human Jesus. 
And it is the telling of this news of life to others that brings us finally to our last point. You see, this passage shows us that Jesus really rose from the dead, which opens up for us this raft of amazing blessings. And we who are sitting here today who have not seen the risen Lord Jesus can know this to be true because of the reliability and authority of the eyewitnesses. And this is where Thomas comes into play. I wonder, for many of us, when we get to this point, especially those of you who maybe aren't Christians, and think, well, this is all well and good, but honestly, no matter how many people tell me the resurrection happened, no matter how much proof you give me, I refuse to believe, because I didn't see it, I wasn't there, I haven't touched the risen Lord Jesus, and I know no one who did. How are we, 2,000 years later, really expected to believe this when we haven't seen it for ourselves? Well, this is exactly what the Apostle John is driving towards in this chapter. Read with me again the end of our passage, verses 24 to 29. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Poor Thomas, he wasn't around for whatever reason when Jesus was first presented Upon hearing from the others that they had seen the Lord, he makes a perfectly plausible statement. Unless I see his hands, I place my finger, I touch his side, I will never believe. Like the others, he too had no expectation that Jesus was going to rise again from the dead. What does Jesus do with Thomas? Well, he loves him. He shows up and he presents himself again in front of the disciples, in front of Thomas for the first time. And he says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Touch my side. Believe. And Thomas responds as strongly in belief as he had in his unbelief. My Lord and my God. But as much as Jesus loves Thomas by revealing himself to him, he also rebukes Thomas gently, doesn't he? Verse 29. Thomas, have you, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who do not see and yet have believed. In other words, this question to Thomas can be reframed as, Thomas, why did you not believe me even though you didn't see me? In short, you had enough information, Thomas, at your disposal to believe that I had risen from the dead. You didn't need to see me to believe that. Where did that information come from? What did Thomas have to go on? He had the testimony of the eyewitnesses. You see, this whole chapter, indeed this entire gospel, has been building towards this point that the eyewitnesses of the whole assembly of the apostles should have been enough for Thomas. 
Why? Because the whole of John's gospel has been setting out to establish these men, these future apostles, to be true, reliable, authentic eyewitnesses from the very opening verses. John 1.14 again. We, the apostles, have seen his glory, glory as from the only Son from the Father. We've seen it. John 15, 27, you disciples and apostles, says Jesus, also will bear witness for you have been with me from the very beginning. Tonight's passage in John 17, the last words of Jesus before he dies, verse 17, sanctify these apostles, Father, in the truth of your word as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them. The whole of the gospel has been set about to establish these apostles as the definitive truth-tellers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Thomas, the first person who wasn't there at the resurrection, when presented with the eyewitness account of these established men of reliability and authenticity and authority and truth, says, I don't believe. Now can you see actually how remarkable it is for Thomas not to believe? Thomas's friends were with Jesus the whole time. They saw Jesus' risen body. I'm sure they detailed to Thomas in the upper room all that had happened that we read about today, all the evidence. Their authentic testimony and the weight of evidence should have led him to believe. But incredulously, he doesn't. That is why Jesus gently rebukes him. Have you only believed because you've seen me, Thomas? Indeed, blessed are those who do not see me but believe. In other words, blessed are those who won't see me, the billions around the earth who won't, and yet who will believe in the reliable, authenticated, God-sanctified, truth-inspired, eyewitness testimony of these godly, trained, knowledgeable men of God. The truth is, you do not have to see in order to believe. None of us really live like that. None of us. In law, in science, history, politics, biography, family memory, all of it based on my trusting and believing a reliable expert eyewitness. Our whole lives are based on that being true. Even the incredible stuff we hear sometimes, and so it is the same with the resurrection. It is not a foolish thing to believe in, even when all of us have never been there because we have the hard factual evidence and testimony of wiser and more knowledgeable people who were there seeing it firsthand. People who were set apart by God himself for this very specific role to tell people what happened to Jesus. And it is for those reasons, in answer to our very opening question, that we can sit here this morning having read this account and be utterly convinced beyond all reasonable doubt that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that he is alive today. And that is why this book is written. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When all is said and done, 
when the truths and facts of the resurrection are laid bare, when the whole of the redemptive narrative of the Bible and the arcing history of the salvation of the people of God reaches this powerful donument in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as he stands in the middle of a room and says, peace be with you, what is there left to do? Verse 30 tells us we must believe, we can believe, that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, who really rose again from the dead and proved the whole of the Bible to be true, and that by believing in this Jesus, we may have eternal life in his name. Jesus has done everything for getting humanity right with God. We now accept that as being true. You see, the reason that John 20 is recorded for us in this authoritative, authenticated version of events, is so that today we have all the evidence and authority we need to make a full, unequivocal decision concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not enough that I accept the evidence. It is not enough that I assent to the fact that eternal life might be real, and it certainly would be nice. It is not enough that I see Jesus as a profoundly good man who is inspired and maybe supernatural. It's not enough. I am compelled to put all my trust in him, to believe that he is God, to believe that he rose again from the dead, to hand over my life to following him, and like these disciples, to speak of him in order that I may have life, not in my name or on my effort, that's proven to be a disaster, but life in his name, which according to the evidence produces real life. As we close, note what Thomas says in response to his believing in Christ. My Lord and my God. Jesus turns the doubter who could not believe into someone who understood in that moment that Jesus Christ was none other than God in human form, the risen Christ, the Lord Almighty, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Emmanuel of the New, and not just God, but his God. More blessed are we this morning, having looked at this authenticated, reliable eyewitness testimony and say those same words, my Lord and my God. To you who are skeptics this morning, to those of you who are doubting whether Christ is worth sticking with, to to those who are suffering unimaginably and are struggling to believe that there really is more to life than this, Jesus presents himself as a living proof to normal, reliable, authenticated people so that we may find life in his name and in his name have that life sustained for an eternity. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so very much for what we've read today. Thank you so much for these men who were authenticated by you in their ministry to tell us the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and that the resurrection really did happen and was real. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you not just rose again from the dead, but that it opened up for us this incredible raft of blessings where we now can call God Father by your Spirit. Heavenly Father, that is remarkable. Lord God, I pray that we would go out of here feeling changed because this news is true. 
Father God, for those of us here who are still very skeptical of Christianity, for those who, who, who are frightened of opening up our hearts to you, Father God, I pray that this passage would help. I pray that through your Holy Spirit, illuminating these real true words of real things that really happened, that people today would maybe for the first time call on you as their Lord and their God. Father God, help us to get out of here feeling um, excited, we pray, by this incredible gospel. And may, Heavenly Father, we not be ashamed of it. May we want to tell people about the fact that someone really has dealt with our sin, has died to pay a debt we couldn't, has risen to life so that we may have life, and has ascended to the Father so that we may have the Spirit, which is the deposit guaranteeing us that possession of an eternity to come. Father God, for all these things, we give you great thanks in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.